I've said it once and I will say it again for the people in the back. Every single morning, I start my day with two things. I start it with 32 ounces of room temperature water with just a smidgen, I'm talking a tiny little bit of pink Himalayan sea salt for the electrolytes and the extra minerals. And then I have another glass, 16 ounces room temp or a little bit chilled of greens juice from Organifi. All right. So I have tried other greens powders before and they had this sickly, sweet, almost bubblegummy taste. Even though the nutrients were fine, I just couldn't stand the taste. I need something light and refreshing and calming in the morning. So this has this almost minty, beautiful, sweet flavor. And you can definitely tell that there's greens involved. I just feel healthier after having had it. So in the morning, I will mix it in. I'll drink it with a straw down the hatch. So easy. It's got chlorella. It's got spirulina. It's got matcha, moringa, so many other anti-inflammatory properties. So you're also filling in a ton of the nutrient gaps that we're missing, especially throughout the holidays. I know when I'm traveling, other people are cooking or I'm cooking other people's food or we're going out to eat. And I know I'm not getting the nutrients that I typically do when I'm just living my day-to-day life. So I notice that if I take my greens powder in the morning, then my cravings aren't as wild as they are otherwise because I'm filling in those nutritional gaps. Typically when we have wild cravings for sweets or quick carbohydrates like breads and candies, typically when we have these cravings, it's really just our body saying that we are deficient in a certain mineral or nutrient and we need to replenish. So I like to start my day with my greens juice and the Organifi probiotic. So make sure you're checking out your greens powder, set yourself up for success, not just during the holidays, but in your everyday life. Go to Organifi.com slash HTH and they're giving away 20% off of all products. My three favorite are the plant-based protein. We have the vanilla and the chocolate, the probiotics. They mix into everything. I actually am drinking them in my coffee as we speak, decaf, and the greens powder. You can travel with it, shake it, bake with it, blend with it, whatever you want to do. It's great. And even your kids will love it. (laughs) All right. So make sure you're checking out Organifi.com slash HTH for 20% off of any product. You cannot go wrong with any of their products. You'll absolutely love them. And if there's any last minute gifts you want to get, then this is definitely the place to do it. Organifi.com slash HTH for 20% off. You can check out the show notes for more information. a plant-dominant podcast and resource for those looking to expand and elevate their health. Every Thursday, you can expect provocative and engaging topics, entertaining interviews, and some of the biggest names in health and wellness. Be prepared for tangible tips and takeaways, and to fully understand what it means to live an optimized and energized life. That you know, more calories out versus calories in will help you lose weight doesn't actually help somebody lose weight. You actually have to understand how the brain works and how, we, how behavior works. Hello, hello. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Hotter Than Health. I am so thrilled for this interview. I've teased it for a couple of weeks now, but this has been a very anticipated episode. I, when I first found our guest, I dove 
so deep into his work. I watched all of his TED Talks. I listened to some of his podcast episodes and truly found so much value and applicable tips that he was giving out. Just so easy to understand, but in a way that makes you realize he's really a professional because they always say that the real pros make everything look easy. And he has a really fantastic way of explaining everything. So who am I talking about? Dr. Judd Brewer. All right. So Dr. Judd Brewer is a neuroscientist, MD, PhD, psychiatrist. He's also a New York Times bestselling author. He is focused on neural mechanisms of mindfulness. And if I was to basically sum all of that up, he is a Yale, MIT, Brown University researching uh Science, neuroscientist who is basically researching how our brains form negative behavior patterns. These are bad habits, addictions, and he has specific techniques that are needed to create lasting change. What I really love about this is he is able to apply a lot of his practices and uh, mindfulness techniques into little habits that we have every day. All right. So the reason I really wanted to reach out to Dr. Judd Brewer was because I have a lot of clients who express concern personally about their emotional eating, their anxiety, or what they feel are bad habits with food. And when they gravitate towards unhealthier foods, they're overeating and things like that. I definitely hear that on a daily, at least weekly basis. And I know it's super important. So if you've ever struggled with food or habits, or you're just trying to really step into a new version of yourself that doesn't have as much of an emotional connection with food, I really love how Dr. Judd is no BS, but he gives us tips that are applicable, not just for food, but for things like anxiety, for things like smoking, shopping, critical self-judgment, anger, bad habits, and what we talk a lot about today, which is emotional eating. And again, like I mentioned before, he is a psychiatrist, he is a MD neuroscientist, but also so, so enchanted with mindfulness. And that's where I think a lot of the value comes in is where he has so much of a research-based medical background, but is able to pair it with a more, a more easy to understand and digestible bit of practice and, and his knowledge and his, um, what am I trying to say? His set of skills, his skill set. Hello. <laughs> clearly, clearly he is going to be more eloquent than I am. But if you have not checked him out, Dr. Judd has a TED Talk that is absolutely impactful. I watched it a couple times over. But what I love about this episode is there are so many takeaways that you'll be able to implement in your day-to-day -day life. And it will help you to observe those habits. Not saying that it's going to point everything out and make you more obsessed about them, but it will help us to reframe and really focus on our cognition when it comes to these bad habits. If you didn't know, we are going to be doing a little giveaway with his brand new book. Make sure you check out the show notes for more information and follow me on Instagram at Eliza G underscore wellness or the hotter than health podcast Instagram so that you do not miss out on this giveaway. You don't want to miss out. I can't wait for this book. You can't wait for this book. It's going to be great. Uh, oh, 
Also, I meant to mention, speaking of Instagram, we also talk about social media addiction, which is a very real thing. So if you have kids or if you are just a millennial like me and you're like, oh, my God, social media is crazy and we grew up without it. But now we have it. It's pretty interesting. Again, since it's the holidays, if you are still interested in booking a strategy call to see if working together one-on-one with me for nutrition programming, if that's still a thought in your mind, go ahead and book your call for the new year. I'll be taking on clients in January and February, but no more for the month of December. So I appreciate all of your love and support, and I can't wait for you guys to listen to this episode. All right, so introducing our guest, Dr. Judd. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Dr. Judd, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm so excited. I've been prepping for this interview. Usually I kind of just hop right in and I'm like, oh, it'll be a fun time. But you were someone that I had some questions for. <laughs> so so I want to start off by you telling our audience a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you ended up in this profession. Yeah, I wasn't expecting I'm an accidental tourist, I guess I would think of it that way as, you know, it started medical school and I was stressed out, gone through a, a challenging relationship breakup and started, you know, it was like a new start for me, graduating from college, starting medical school. So I decided to start meditating my first day of medical school, you know, just like, why not? And I found that it was really helpful when I would be in boring medical school lectures. I could, you know, pay attention to my breath as a practice. And I felt like I was doing something productive as compared to falling asleep. So that was, you know, just something I was hoping to do personally. And as I went through my MD PhD program, I started to realize how little I knew about my own mind. And, you know, I was always interested in like the mind-body connection. So my PhD, I was studying the connections between the brain and the immune and the, the stress systems, you know, like why we basically why we get sick when we get stressed. But that was all in mouse models uh, and all of that. And at the end of the day, I could never answer the question, you know, the so what question, like, you know, so you discover something cool in mice, you know, so what, how does that help people? So when I finished my MD PhD program, I decided to become a psychiatrist. And it's funny, um, I never thought I'd be a psychiatrist. I, you know, these MD PhD programs you do like two years of medical school, and then you do your PhD for long enough to forget everything you've learned in medical school. And then they throw you back on the wards for third year. And then, you know, it's like, go. So I did my psychiatry residency think or my psychiatry rotation in third year medical school thinking, oh, I'll, this will help me remember how to interview patients. <laughs> and, and here I am, I'm a psychiatrist. So your long story short, I was like, wow, I really like this. And it actually lined up a lot with my own personal meditation practice and the mindfulness training that I'd been doing where I could start to see these parallels and that's what led me to do residency in psychiatry and also specifically focus on addiction psychiatry because not a lot of great treatments and a lot of people that really are marginalized by, by society. And it just, mm-hmm. I just really, well, I, it turns out I could relate to them a lot. Like my mind, you know, I, I get addicted to all sorts of things, most of them socially acceptable. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> but when I went into residency, I had this big, I had to do, I had to go for it where, you know, I could continue doing what I was doing with molecular biology research and all of that, or I could completely shift my career. And I decided this was the time to shift it 
to study mindfulness because there was very little research, very little done in, the, in Western mindfulness. I mean, this, you know, the Buddhist roots of this have been around 2,500 years, but in Western medicine where, you know, randomized controlled trials are gold, you know, like that's, you know, if you don't talk to me in terms of a randomized controlled trial, it's not true, that type of thing. Yep. Uh, so I wanted to see if I could actually study this. And I remember people telling me I was going to kill my career because, you know, this stuff was, you know, rainbows and candles and unicorns and all this. Woo woo. Yeah, totally woo woo. And so I, but I just, I was like, you know, I'd rather kill my career and do something that I'm really interested in than do something that I could probably do just fine as a scientist and, you know, and, but just not be happy. So, you know, I shifted my whole career and I was so glad actually that I waited you know, this is like 10 years after starting my own practice. So I had direct experience with this stuff, never thinking I would research it for 10 years, just diving into the practices. And it was really helpful because it helped me look to see what the essential elements were experientially. And it also helped a ton with being able to carefully and, you know, effectively interview patients because I could get out of my own way. And, you know, so it helped me personally. But it was just really instrumental in saying, okay, these are the key elements. Let's study these. And you know, as we can get into, uh, it worked out and, all right. And we also, I think that it's important to note that so many people after 10 years, they might think that they might think, oh my gosh, all this time has been wasted. But actually you need that amount of time to figure out what works for you, apply it, and then observe your studies. So you were your own personal case study. I think that that's huge. And I don't think a lot of people give it that full time. So many people, they find this passion, they find something that works for them and they immediately think, okay, career, how can I make money from this? How can I do implement? But I think that what you did was so fascinating. You actually allowed it to lead you where you should end up. Yeah, and you know, and part of that, some I, I like the way you're phrasing that and thought about it that way. But the, you know, I spent 10 years beating my head against a wall before I realized that I was beating my head against a wall. It was just, you know, it's like, oh, I got to pay attention to my breath. That's the instruction. I remember my first seven day silent meditation retreat I went on. This was during medical school. I, by the third day, I was crying uncontrollably on the shoulder of the retreat manager because I felt like, you know, I, was like, I can get into medical school, but I can't pay attention to my breath. What's wrong with me? And that turned out to be instrumental in me really seeing what doesn't work. Like, like you said, you know, finding what works. I had to find what didn't work. And what didn't work was the Western mindset of just, you know, just do it. It's a great Nike slogan doesn't work so well for, for, for meditating or behavior change, it turns out. And that was, that was critical to being able to see what I was doing poorly so that I could study and develop effective treatments to help people not, you know, not follow in my head beating in the wall footsteps. Exactly. And then, then it also is such a long process for addiction because they also have to find out what works for them, what doesn't work for them. So it's this practice of understanding that it's always a practice. It's never, you're never going to get there. And that leads me into my first question. Like I showed you before we started recording, I have 10,000 questions for you. And I'm interested in, we've, we've done a lot of, have a lot of conversations and interviews on the podcast about addiction and, uh, habits more, more 
easy to say, I think. So when you're talking about habits and addiction, what are some of the main ties that both of those had? So I don't want to say bad habits, but the habits that get you away from maybe an end goal. But what would you say is something that you see in your addiction clients and patients, as well as just people who are trying to break a bad habit? Do you find that a lot of the times it's from a place in their childhood? Do you find that it is just based on emotion? What do you find often the root is of those types of things? Yes, a great, good question. And so I would say, you know, this isn't about, and I am a card carrying board certified psychiatrist, you know, so, you know, the stereotype of somebody laying on the couch and me sitting behind them doodling on a notepad, um, you know, it's not, I don't want to discount childhood experiences. And I would say most you know, most habits, for example, get set up in childhood. So for example, we've done a lot of work with smoking cessation and the average age that, that the people in my studies have started smoking and also in my clinic is right around the age of 13, you know, between 11 and 14. So these habits get set up in childhood. A lot of eating habits get set up in childhood. I'm thinking of a patient that I treated with binge eating disorder who, when I saw her, she was about the age of 30, but she had the way she described it was that she set up this habit around binge eating when she was probably around eight years of age when her mom would emotionally um, you know abuse her basically. And it was the only way she put it this way that she would so just to set the stage, she's pretty overweight. When she came to see me, she was binging on entire large pizzas 20 out of 30 days a month. So really really um, struggling. Yeah. And sometimes she would binge on top of a binge and we can talk about why I call those echo habit loops, but we can talk about that in a minute, but she basically said she would eat to numb herself. And so you can think of the, the basic habit pattern as, you know, any habit and any addiction is set up through this basic process of a trigger of behavior and a result. So, you know, if some, for example, this patient with binge eating disorder, her trigger was that she would have some negative emotion come up, you know, starting when she was a kid, it would be, you know, she'd feel bad because her mom would yell at her or something. So, but in adulthood, when she had, you know, negative emotions come up, she'd already learned that if she binged, there's the behavior, the result was that she could numb herself and that numbing felt better, even though it was numb, it felt better than the negative emotion. And that basic process, trigger behavior result, that's what forms all habits. And it also forms all addictions. You know, addictions tend to get reinforced in a very deep way when it's a chemical addiction, for example, because they're at the same time, they're hijacking the dopamine system where, you know, if it's cocaine, they're blocking the dopamine transporter. So there's more dopamine in the system. If it's nicotine, it's affecting, you know, basically every drug of abuse affects, uh, affects dopamine. So you can, you can have a drug or a substance, you know, like alcohol or cigarettes or heroin or cocaine, all of those can reinforce the process. And you know, that's what we call a classical addiction. But it turns out that food also affects the dopamine system. In fact, there are, there are dopamine pathways that are connected up in the mouth as well as in the stomach. It's like, oh, wow. this is a very hardwired system. And the reason it's wired that way is that before food was in abundance, you know, like where we have refrigerators and we can store food, 
And, you know, our ancient ancestors had to find food and remember where it was. So it's actually set up to help us lay down memory to remember where food is. And it also is set down, set up to help us lay down memory to remember, remember where danger is so we can eat and not be eaten. And mm. that's all, that's all about dopamine. You know, you know, you, let's say you're hungry. There's the trigger, the behaviors, you find some food and you eat it. And then the result is that your stomach sends this dopamine signal to your brain that says, remember where this is and remember what this is. So that system is, you know, it's actually evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea slug. Yeah. Oh, well, hello, sea slugs. That's <laughs> brilliant. Thank you so much for those. I, that's really interesting that you're talking about the, the reward. I was having a conversation with a client this morning who mentioned that maybe she had a sweet tooth at night. And I mentioned to her, I said, okay, I want you to challenge yourself every, and this is probably not great of me to have say, but here we are. And <laughs> all authenticity. I told her, okay, every single night, even if you don't want it that much, especially if you don't want it that much, I want you to have two pieces of dark chocolate. And I was like, put it on your calendar after every dinner so that it's no longer you're reaching for the chocolate when you really, really, really want it. You're reaching for it. Even when it, you could take it or leave it to reduce a lot of that reward feeling that you get from it so that she's not as much associating chocolate and we're just experimenting here, but I figured why not kind of reduce that reward. You mentioned something in one of your Ted talks or another podcast where I heard you found you, it, you mentioned having multiple opportunities per day to reinforce a habit. Can you talk about what is happening? Let's say with something that's kind of plaguing at least my generation, uh, social media and, and food. A lot of people are now working from home. We're, we're in our kitchens. And can you talk about the constant reward and why it's so challenging for people to move away from those habits? Like why, why do I have phantom Instagram thumb? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So social media and food, I can just, I can think of many common pathways that they share. So let's use one example. And if you, if there are others, we can bring those in as well. So boredom, for example, uh, my patients will eat when they're bored, not when they're hungry. It's called, you know, hedonic hunger, as in, you know, based on an emotion as compared to homeostatic hunger, which is based on actual hunger, you know, physiologic hunger. And they'll also go to social media when they're bored. So there's one, you know, one common example. Let's, so boredom can be that trigger. And then the behavior is that we go to eat food as a way to distract ourselves from the boredom or, and we also go on social media often to, as a way to distract ourselves from boredom. So that distraction is rewarding. There's the results. And then that feeds back and says, Hey, next time you're bored, you know, eat some food, go on social media or whatever. And both food and social media are designed, I shouldn't say all food, but a lot of food type items, let's call them that. Cause I, I wouldn't consider Doritos a food. <laughs> you mean you're talking like cheese whiz. Yeah. 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 So cheese with Cheetos, for example, let's say Cheetos are a great example because they've been, they've been engineered to, uh, to melt in your mouth so that you don't get the sense of, you know, that there's substance there. There's there's specific color. Notice how they're basically the same color as Doritos. Uh, they have a certain mouthfeel, a certain taste, a certain crunch. They hit tick all the boxes to make this stuff addictive. You know, in fact, in fact, my favorite peer-reviewed journal, The Onion, 
um, you know, they had a headline that says Dorito celebrates its one millionth ingredient because these oh, things are, they're highly engineered. Right? They really are. Yeah. yeah. I, I also heard, uh, and I'm pretty sure I'm on about this just based on what you're saying with so much, there's always a method to the madness of why we love these things. So when you're eating a chip or you're eating something, isn't it, I believe that it's also chemically engineered so that the flavor doesn't last in your mouth that long so that you're always reaching for the next one. It, it stays just long enough so that you're, before you're even done chewing, you can feel the flavor going away. And so you're always reaching for the next yeah, and you can think of this, I think a great example here. So it's it's that type of food, but even with ice cream, which is less heavily engineered, uh, be, I'm sure people engineer ice cream, but I think some of my favorite ice creams, the stuff that just is like really natural and just, you know. Like sweet butter. Yeah, like five five ingredients. And even that, we tend to be anticipating the next lick rather than enjoying the the amount that's in our food right in our mouth right now. So even then, if you look at the our system, the dopamine firing goes from receiving the the sweet treat, for example, like, oh, I like this type of ice cream. The firing shifts from getting it to anticipating it. And that anticipation from a survival standpoint is set up to get us to go get food, right? It says that's where we have the craving of got to get some. So with, with ice cream, when we're not even hungry and we're eating ice cream, we're still anticipating the next lick, looking yes. forward to it and not actually enjoying what we're, what's in our mouth, which is crazy. That's such a good point. It's so true. We are always looking for the next. And that goes with, honestly, that's for that's for food. It's for sex. It's for any type of instant gratification. Like the, the anticipation is always better or at least more heightened than the actual receiving of the good itself. Wow. I actually have never heard of it explained like that. Thank you. Yeah. But it explains what is it, you know, in dating, it's like the thrill of the chase. Mm -hmm. you know, that's, mm -hmm. I think that's what you're talking about. That anticipation. Oh, that first kiss, that you know, that first encounter or whatever. Because it's you know, when, it's like when you see a dog running towards something that it doesn't like and it's anticipating a fight and you see its hair rise up on its back, but while it's fighting, it's it's just almost blacked out. You know, it's just, it's in it. And I, I want to touch on that a bit. We're talking about going into the refrigerator while we're bored. I'm guilty of getting on social media while I'm watching a movie next to my boyfriend. We were watching a movie last night and I was on my phone and he was like, are you not paying attention? I was like, I didn't even realize I was on my phone. <laughs> so I had to put, I put it on the charger in my bedroom. So I had it away, but it, it, and I wasn't even bored. It was just that we're so used to this high stimulation and someone dancing, you know, dance monkey dance in front of me. I want to know what some actual take-home tools we can start to implement as far as food and uh, let's even say alcohol or social media. What are some ways that we can observe these habit loops like you were mentioning so that we can, it's not just willpower, it's, it's how can we stop the loop and maybe reverse the loop? Yeah. And I would go beyond, it's not just willpower. And I, I wrote about this in, in the Unwinding Anxiety book. Willpower is actually more a myth than muscle. You know, we'd like to, it's great for diet programs where they can say, 
oh, you failed the program. You should sign up for another year. You know, willpower is real. You know, this, this calories out versus calories in. The formula is true. I mean, I learned that in medical school. But just knowing that, you know, more calories out versus calories in will help you lose weight doesn't actually help somebody lose weight. You actually have to understand how the brain works and how, we, how behavior works. So here I would say, you know, for all of those that have felt like they failed and they've yo-yo dieted or whatever because of their willpower, I would say that is not your fault. <laughs> you know, you've been duped in terms of, you know, marketing or whatever, where somebody has convinced you that, you know, it's just, you got to have stronger willpower. So that's where I would start. It's like, oh, let's, well, let's look at how the brain works. And the only way to change a behavior and for especially a habitual behavior is through one simple ingredient, which is awareness. And the, the reason for that is, and this research goes back, you know, decades, uh, and it's still, you know, these formulas are still true today, where basically we're going to, I think of it as set and forget. So you set the reward value of a behavior, let's say eating ice cream or eating chocolate cake. And then we probably set that, you know, first, you know, think of all the birthday parties, for example, where we've combined cake and ice cream and presents and, you know, joy, parties. joy. Yeah. And friends. So we kind of set that reward value and we're like, and somebody says, well, why do you like chocolate cake so much? Probably the answer is, I don't know. I just do because we've, we've set it and we've forgotten about the details long, probably a long time ago. And then every time we eat and it tastes good, it just reinforces it. So the only way to change a habit is through bringing awareness to it and asking basically, what am I getting from this? And the reason I use that question is it's very simple, but what it does is it taps into the reward value of any behavior in our brain. And so for example, if I um, if there's a new bakery that opens up in my neighborhood and I haven't had their chocolate cake, I go in there and I eat it. And let's say it's the most delectable chocolate cake I've ever had. I get what's called in mathematical terms, a positive prediction error, meaning that it was better than expected because I had a certain reward value laid down and it was really good. And my brain learns, right? This is all about learning. My brain learns, hey, good bakery. You should come back here, you know, again. But if I ate the cake and I was like, yeah, I've had better, I get what's called a negative prediction error where my brain says it's worse than expected. And I learned something there as well. Now that is key for changing any behavior. It's not that if we pay attention and we love chocolate cake that we're going to stop loving chocolate cake. Yeah. But this is where amount comes in. I think of it as the pleasure plateau. And in fact, my lab's done studies on this. We have this app called Eat Right Now. And we embedded this craving tool where we could measure changes in reward value. And here we found as people paid attention, that reward value dropped. Are you ready for this? Within 10 to 15 times of somebody using that tool. It doesn't take long to change a behavior. Which makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint, you don't get 20 chances to be chased by the tiger, right? You've got to figure that out pretty quickly that that's a dangerous beast. So we, if we pay attention, let's say with overeating, 10 to 15 times that reward value drops below zero and we shift our behavior. So that's the only way to change any habit. So if it's overeating or if it's eating junk food, I'll give an example, junk food with my own, my own life. 
Okay, so I have noticed that if I want to do pasta or rice, anything like that for lunch, sometimes if I'm using my regular brown rice noodles, I get a little bit sleepy midday and I just don't have time or the energy to be sleepy like that, all right? So I have a hack. There is a konjac noodle. It is zero calories, zero carbs, zero basically everything because it comes from a konjac plant, all right? And being plant-based, this is a huge find for me. I started using them a few years ago, but then I realized that the packages that I was getting were kind of, they had this weird smell to it and it turned me off until I tried Konjac King. All right. So you need a better noodle. Unlike some other companies, the Konjac King offers only the highest quality and shirataki products. There is no more smelly noodles or leaky packaging. They only sell odor-free noodles and all products are double sealed for safety and quality. So you can eat this giant bowl of pasta with absolutely zero downtime afterwards. So you can load it up with veggies and sauces and it is incredible. All right. It definitely adds volume to your noodles. I sometimes like to do regular noodles and then add in a whole bag of shirataki noodles and you just get so much more bang for your buck so much volume it's amazing so to celebrate their first full year in business, the Konjac King is having a massive sale until the end of 2021. You can get up to 21% off popular items like the nine pack of fettuccine or the variety sampler, which is what I have tried. So go to www.betternoodle.com hotter and save. Don't wait until the new year to start eating better. I'm telling you, you have got to try these shirataki noodles and do not get the stinky kind that you get at the store. Make sure you check out betternoodle.com com slash hotter that's hotter at the end treat yourself like royalty once again check out www.betternoodle.com slash hotter make sure you try the variety sampler and use the rice for a stir fry it's so good i used to be addicted to gummy worms like you know i just have to eat the whole bag because you know, I just, I, they'd be out of the house at least, and I wouldn't be thinking about them. And then I started you know, <laughs> applying what I was studying to my own life. And I started paying attention as I would eat these gummy worm. And I realized that these, they kind of had this sickly sweet petroleum taste to them. You know, it's like, yep. yeah, it's just, they just really didn't taste that good. And whenever I ate one, they, somewhere in that design, they said, have another one, have another one. So they're designed to be addictive. So then I, so I started paying attention. I was like, wow, these really aren't that great. And then I compared them to eating blueberries and I, boy, I don't know, you know, and this could be anything for, for different people, but for me, blueberries have this perfect balance between sweetness and the, um, the texture of a, you know, of a good plump blueberry. They have a good give, a good give yeah. in them. A yeah. Good give. I like that. They have a good give. And so I could eat blueberries, totally enjoy them not overindulge because the, I get the fiber and the bulk and all that. And they weren't designed to, you know, to disappear. And then I'd be satisfied. And so I could buy a bunch of blueberries and not have to eat the whole thing and actually enjoy them. And so when I started comparing that, that also tapped into this reward value of my brain, which says, I think of this as the BBO, the bigger, better offer. I was like, which one's better? Blueberries for me or the BBO. Yeah. I can and eat so much more. Yeah, totally, totally. So I became disenchanted with gummy worms. And that's what I see in my clinic. That's what I see with people using our Eat Right Now program. Whereas if they pay attention, they can find that pleasure plateau, whether it's you know delicious food or whatever. They don't overindulge. 
they start to shift from eating junk food to healthy food because they just feel better. And then, you know, they, without even trying, if, if they're a little overweight, they'll actually lose some weight, mm -hmm. um, not out of trying to force themselves to lose weight and deprive themselves. It's like, like you're saying, they can have a couple of squares of chocolate. If they pay attention, they don't actually have to eat a whole bar of chocolate. I can't eat a whole bar of chocolate. Like it's just, especially dark chocolate, you know, two squares is about all I need. Yeah. I'm up all night. If I have more than a few squares of dark, dark chocolate, um, you mentioned something. So you mentioned the comparison between, and of course, this is just one example. You mentioned the comparison of, okay, a bowl of gummy bears or gummy worms, and then a bowl of blueberries. And it seems as though you replaced one with the other, a healthier version for the more processed version. And I want to talk a little about what you see as far as addiction going deeper than that, as far as, not, not that food and social media is not a real addiction, but it is something that is a little less physically harmful sometimes in the, in the short term. Talking about drugs and alcohol and pills and opioids and liquor, whatever it may be, when you're looking at that, I know that in some Alcoholics Anonymous or addictions resources, they don't want to talk as much about replacing. It's more about completely shutting off that loop. And yeah. this is this is just, you know, a resource from a professional because we haven't had many, we haven't had many neuroscientists on the podcasts. And I want to be sensitive with the way we're talking about it. But what would you say if someone is what's the difference between a bad habit and then a bad addiction? Cause yeah. I feel like I don't want to muddy the waters. Yeah. And that's an important thing to explore. So in residency, I learned this very simple definition of addiction, which is continued use despite adverse consequences. And I like that particularly because that covers all substances. Like you're talking about alcohol, cocaine, heroin, whatever. And it also covers things like texting. So, you know, for example, texting in one study was shown to be more dangerous than drunk driving. You know, so you know, we can we can think of alcohol, you know, driving when drunk is really dangerous. And we can also think of start to bring in these other behaviors. If we continue to do them despite adverse consequences, they can be just as dangerous and just as addictive. So texting while driving dangerous, right? And so that, that could fall into the same category. We see the same thing, you know, a lot of people debate whether eating, you know, can be addictive or whatever. If you look at, you know, continue just despite adverse consequences, there are plenty of adverse consequences when people overconsume, especially food that's designed to be that way. So the way I think of these, let's use alcohol, for example, or, or any other, you know, of the classic addiction, addictive substances. When I work with my patients there, the, you know, some people use substitution strategies, like you're saying, you know, with, with smoking, for example, it's, you know, eat some candy instead of smoking a cigarette, which is in the short term, probably less deadly, but, you know, over consuming sugar is also not very helpful for us. And that was what I learned in residency here, you know, now after decades of, of research and clinical practice, I'm finding that 
you know, our brains really don't work through substitution strategies that well. So substitution strategies will help sometimes, but then if you don't have access to that substitution strategy and you haven't actually uprooted the, the core habit loop, then, then we're just going to fall right back and fall prey to the same addiction. So here, I think as you're alluding to, a lot of programs talk about like, how can we actually get at the core of the issue, right? And this isn't about going back to our childhood and because we can't change our childhood. We can't change what happened in the past. And in fact, if you look at the, these models for how you know, behaviors are reinforced, none of them have childhood or past experience in the formula. The formula is all about paying attention to see how rewarding something is now. And so with alcohol, for example, I have my patients really pay attention, like when they wake up in the morning, really pay attention to what it feels like to have a hangover. And when they wake up and they haven't binged the night before on alcohol, to really wake up and notice what that feels like to wake up with a with a you know clean basically a, a fresh mind or a clean oh it's that's yeah. addicting it's addicting to wake up without a hangover yeah it's so good so I actually I can I have a patient who she had alcohol alcoholism for decades like she was she's about just over 50 now um but and she's had about two years of sobriety and the way that we worked on that was to have her really pay attention and see, you know, when she drank the night before, what did she get when she woke up that morning and she hadn't drunk? What was that like? How did it affect her kids? How did it affect her relationship to all these things? And it became super clear very quickly that it's a, you know, the bigger, better offer was not drinking. And so every morning she wakes up and she still does this. And she just thinks, what was it like when last time I was drunk, even though it was now over two years ago? And what's it feel like now when I'm not? And it's a no-brainer. It's so it it for her, that's what keeps her sober. Every morning she wakes up and does that. And it becomes every day becomes that bigger, better offer because she's she's played that tape, you know, yeah. so many times in the past. She knows exactly what will happen if she drinks. And so she doesn't have to force herself to not drink. She just compares them and lets her brain do the work for her. I love that. And and that's so important. Again, the awareness is we want to be so avoidant of that awareness sometimes because it's so much easier to just be numb than it is to feel something. Because what if we can't regulate those emotions and those feelings, or what if we can't label them? Like there's so many things that come up when, but if you're numb, then you're, you're good to go. It's funny. The podcast that came out when this comes out, it will have been last week, weird matrix, but the one I just did, we talked a lot about how I had been after a traumatic incident. I was definitely very emotionally numb for about three and a half years. And it took all the work that I had done over the three and a half years that I thought was just throwing, throwing shit at a wall, hoping it would stick. And over the past two or three months, it's beginning to stick. And I feel like a different person, but it wouldn't have happened without me reducing alcohol and caffeine because too much of that stimulus was reminding me of my old homeostasis, my old home, which was fight or flight. And I wanted to create a new home. It's just the the mindfulness and the awareness. Like clearly I'm not a neuroscientist, but all of these habits are so profound and they truly start to compound the value of them compounds. It's really, it's really true. You 
also talk. So you talked about this person, your client waking, being able to wake up now and basically select the life that she wants compared to how she knows she would feel otherwise. Mm -hmm. I do want to ask what you think about people using psilocybin or mushrooms, ayahuasca in order to have some healing effects. I know that that might not be in your protocol. I don't know. I want to hear your thoughts on it because I've heard so many people say, you know, ego and get into the mind. What are your thoughts on medicinal mushrooms? So it's interesting. Some of the early work that I did, we published this over 10 years ago now uh, with studying experienced meditators. We wanted to see how their brains differed from novice meditators. And we found that this brain network called the default mode network gets really quiet in experienced meditators. And that was that network's been implicated in craving in particular. So whether somebody craves chocolate or cocaine or cigarettes, that network gets really active, gets really hot. And we found that experienced meditators decreased this brain region. In fact, Anderson Cooper even came to our lab for a 60 minutes uh, episode and we hooked him up and he, he actually did this on film. So folks can actually see what this looks like. It was pretty cool. Bring, yeah, yeah, it was pretty neat. Um, what we, the reason I bring that up is that literally a few months after we published our first paper, some folks at the University College of London, so Robin Carhart Harris and David Nutt, published the first study of IV psilocybin, which is that you know magic ingredient in magic mushrooms, where they looked at brain activity of people, uh, you basically on shrooms, and they found a very very similar pattern of deactivation to the point where I immediately contacted them and said, "Wow, this cannot be a coincidence." And over the next few years, I uh, did some, you know, I talked with folks like Roland Griffiths and did some, some pilot work that as he was setting up um, some protocols down at Johns Hopkins, looking at psilocybin. And all of this seems to, to suggest that these, you know, the magic mushrooms affects the same brain systems as, as mindfulness training does. And that, so I thought that was not only interesting, but you can think of this as, you know, I think of those as like, throwing a hand grenade in your brain and like blowing up the self, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's a pretty powerful experience. So I think folks are now trying to figure out how they could actually scale something like this. Okay. Uh, and people have had pretty profound experiences. You know, Griffith's lab is, is published stuff like with smoking cessation and things like that. Yet I think one thing that people are now trying to figure out is how can you, how can you pair this with some type of mental training? And this is where... You know, I think as humans, we learn the best through feedback. And so, and the best vehicle for feedback is our own experience, right? And so if we look at it, and you can think of it as that feeling of contraction um, that comes with a craving, same feeling that comes with, uh, with anxiety when we're, when we're worried about the future, that feeling of contraction correlates with activation in this default mode network. And mindfulness helps us let go, helps us be with our experience rather than getting caught up in it. Mm -hmm. And we've shown this with neurofeedback studies, uh, et cetera. And I think to dial into our own experience is a great way to give ourselves feedback from our own experience. For example, we did a study with my, we have this app-based mindfulness training called Craving to Quit for Smoking Cessation. And we could randomize people to get, we would scan their brains before they did it. And then we randomize them, get that or the National Cancer Institute's app. And we found that we could, 
we could predict their the amount that they would drop uh, cigarettes, you know, smoking by how much their default mode network got active got deactivated. And we can even do the same thing with anxiety, where we have this another app called Unwinding Anxiety <laughs> to help people with anxiety. And here we got a 67% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores. Like this was this is crazy. You know, what does like it, just to conceptualize, what does the difference between someone in a heightened state of anxiety, the average person that you're working with, and then what does a 67% drop in that look like? What are the two differences, not just on a screen, but in their body language and their the way they carry themselves? Oh, it's it's night and day difference. So this this is people with generalized anxiety disorder where they have, you know, they wake up in the morning, they're anxious, they start to get worried about why they're anxious or whether they're going to be anxious all day. It's really a really tough, you know, a tough uh, situation. And where they can go from like severe anxiety to minimal anxiety. Uh, as an example, and I actually write a little bit about one of my patients in my Unwinding Anxiety book because he, he, he's really an exemplar of this, where this guy comes in, he's diagnosed with both generalized anxiety disorder and panic disorder, right? He was mm. afraid to drive his car on the highway because he would get panic attacks and all this. Generalized anxiety disorder. Long story short, after about six months, so he used our Unwinding Anxiety app and, to, and he was able to work with his anxiety so much that at one of our sessions, he came in and he said, you know... I'm getting anxious that I'm not anxious because he would start to have these long stretches of calm, of peace. And his brain would say, wow, this is so different than what I've been used to the last 30 years that I'm, I'm getting anxious. And that's our brain. Anytime there's, there's, there's uncertainty, right? Something is different. Our brain goes on alert and it says, hey, is there danger here? And so what he and I worked with was to help him identify change is not necessarily dangerous. He can look around and instead of going into his panic zone or his anxiety zone, which is his old habit, he could move into his growth zone. And instead of going, oh no, what's wrong? I'm not anxious. He'd go, oh, I'm not anxious. And he could tap into curiosity. Wow. So here, that's what it looks like is somebody going from being so anxious that they don't even know what it's like not to be anxious to being not anxious. And this guy, he now, no kidding, he became an Uber driver. <laughs> so, so what? That, yeah, he became an Uber driver. Uh, I remember walking out of the School of Public Health at, at Brown after teaching a class and it's on Main Street. It's on this busy street. This guy pulls up, rolls down his window. It's my patient. He goes, hey, I'm an Uber driver. Now I'm headed to the airport to pick somebody up. Blew my mind, blew my mind. That gives me goosebumps for him. Yeah, yeah. So that's what it can look like is somebody being literally paralyzed from worrying about having panic attacks, barely driving on local roads to becoming an Uber driver. Somebody who's been anxious so long that they don't know what it's like not to be anxious, having basically having that anxiety be, be completely gone. So that's that's what it can look like. I want to talk a bit about this app, but first I know that I really would love one or two tools to tap into mindfulness. So whether it's a, a quick glimpse into the app of what is it called? A beating anxiety or managing? Unwinding anxiety. Oh, I love that. Unwinding anxiety. I'm going to have links to all of this in the show notes, everyone. So the book, the apps, all of that, and all of your information. 
personal telephone number, address, all that good stuff. And so I also want to hear, okay, so what is one resource or what is one thing that people can do today if they're feeling anxious right now and they know that they're leaning towards either looking at their phone or smoking a cigarette or going straight to the refrigerator to get something crunchy? What is one exercise that they could implement today? So one of the, one of my favorite practices for grounding ourselves is called five finger breathing. We have this in the unwinding anxiety app, but basically it's, you know, you, you take an index finger of one hand and you place it at the base of your pinky on the other hand. And as we breathe in, we can pay attention to four things at once, the physical sensations on both fingers, what our breath is doing and watching our finger tracing. So as we breathe in, we trace up. As we breathe in, we trace down. We'll do one more. As we breathe in, we trace up our ring finger. As we breathe out, we trace down our ring finger. Okay, maybe one more. As we breathe in, trace up our middle finger. And as we breathe out, we trace down our middle finger. I love that. So that was only three breaths, but what that does, so our brains, our working memory part of our brain cannot hold much information at once. It can only hold, you know, say four to seven pieces of information. That's why phone numbers, Traditionally, we're set up with seven digits. So you could try to remember that before smartphones, yes. So with our working memory, having to pay attention to the physical sensations on two hands, the physical sensation of breathing and watching our hands, that's four things. That crowds out worry thoughts, right? And what it does, I don't know if you noticed this, but even three mindful breaths helps to calm our physiology and our feeling body is much stronger than our thinking brain. So if those worry thoughts come back in, there's now an emotional valence, or I should say intensity mismatch, where our body is feeling calm and our, those worry thoughts come in and say, hey, aren't you supposed to be anxious? And our body says, eh, I'm not really feeling it right now. And they actually have to be at the same level for them to feed off of each other. So at that point, we can start to notice, oh, there's a thought and we can let it go, which is what mindfulness is all about. It's about changing our relationships to our thoughts, relationship to our emotions, et cetera. So if we can come in and just ground ourselves with three mindful breaths, that can help pr provide that resilience so that when those thoughts come in, we can just notice them and not get caught up in them. So it's like a mindfulness interrupter. Yes. Yeah. I That's so, so fantastic. And I honestly, it feels good because also oddly, these, these fingers that we selected first, the pinky and the uh, ring finger, it, uh, they're sensitive. They feel they sensitive to touch. Totally. It's not like the yeah. palm of your hand where it's just kind of rough. I got calluses, you know, it's, it's sensitive. It's delicate. That's nice. Yeah. So it invites that curiosity, like, hmm, wow, what does this feel like? And for some people they say, and I'm even doing this again now, it's, it almost is like this little gentle tickle. Yes. Where it's like, Ooh, <laughs> it's, it, and it also, it is kind of like a childlike tactic. You know, it's something you would teach a child, but we need it. We need it. Yeah, I was going to say, and I love this too. I'm glad you mentioned that. We can teach children this and parents that are anxious, they can have their kids say, hey, when I'm anxious, can you walk me through this practice? Because their kids, the kids want to help their parents. And here's something the kid can do to help their parent calm down. And it's a great thing to, it, it kind of, um, it, you know, it gives that child agency, gives them the ability to help where as compared to just watching their parent freak out. That's so great. And then, yeah, teaching is the best way to learn. I totally 
that that's amazing. I can't wait to, well, I have a niece. She is two months old, so I don't think we're doing that yet, but can't wait someday. But I have obviously a million more questions I would love to ask you. Well, we'll have to have you back on the podcast, but before you leave, give us a quick glimpse of what people can expect with your app, Unwinding Anxiety, and a little about your book and where we can find you. Sure. The Unwinding Anxiety app, so it's available, anybody can download it on any you know iOS or Android platform. And the way we set it up is to, there are these 30 core modules that it's like 10 minutes a day, videos, animations, these in the moment exercises like we just did to help people learn how their minds work so they can work with their minds. And it starts there because you know when I first started meditating, I had no idea why I was supposed to pay attention to my breath, just that I was supposed to. And here, if we train people to start to recognize what their habit loops are around anxiety, and that anxiety can actually be driven habitually, which is not something I learned in medical school, that gives them the agency and the ability to start to work with the anxiety. And this is, I we have direct evidence suggesting that this is why we can get such a large reduction in anxiety in people with these really severe, you know, anxiety disorders. So this can work for anybody with anxiety. And also they can learn that they can unwind other habit loops as well. A lot of people stress eat. And so, you know, we've, a lot of people in our unwinding anxiety program use it to help them with eating or if somebody's struggling with eating, they can just use our eat right now program, but basically 30 core modules gives them the basic training. And then we have these theme weeks where they can dive deeper into any of the concepts. For example, a lot of people judge themselves when they're anxious or when they're, you know, when they're at an unhealthy weight and they, you know, that judgment can be a habit loop unto itself. So we can help people work with that. We can help people work with procrastination, help people work with all the things that contribute to anxiety, overeating, you know, and things like that. And the idea is to take this evidence-based training, put it at their fingertips because, you know, we all have, as Cornell West puts it, these weapons of mass, mass distraction, right? Our smartphones, we can turn to them and scroll through Instagram, or we could turn to them and learn about our own minds and learn how to work with our own minds that way. Mm -hmm. In fact, we actually just came out with a kind of for anybody that wants to, maybe they, they're in the mode of self-improvement. You know, there's a lot of that, or just learning about themselves we put together an app called Unwinding by Sharecare. I don't want it, not to be confused with Unwinding Anxiety, but we like the term unwinding so much. We unfortunately used it twice. <laughs> and, and there people can, there are a bunch of mini courses where people can learn about their minds. They can work with procrastination, financial stress, learn about how their brain works and all those things. And so we've got whether somebody is just wants to work with their you know own bodies and minds and learn how how they work and master them they can use this unwinding by sharecare or if they're really struggling with anxiety that's what the unwinding anxiety apps for. I think that is so awesome. I'm so excited. And for everyone listening if you haven't already make sure you also check out Dr. Judd's TED Talk. It is it, it's so succinct and he does a really great job of associating with visual aids and stories and things like that. But thank you so much for your time and all of this information. We've got to do a round two because there's just <laughs> so much to unpack here. <laughs> Happy to. All right. Well, thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Hotter Than Health. If you enjoyed this episode, if you found any value in the podcast episode or the podcast in general, make sure you hop over to iTunes and leave us five stars and leave a review. If you have a moment, it takes about 20 seconds. You just hop on to the little purple podcast app on your phone. If you're listening on Spotify, make sure when you look at the Hotter Than Health profile, you are already following the podcast. That way you never miss an episode wherever you're listening rate us five stars, leave a review where you can. It is an incredible way to support the podcast and ensure that other people can find this as well. So if they're typing in things like PhD psychiatrist or neuroscientist, uh, anything like that, then we absolutely can make sure that they are finding this episode. So thank you so much for listening. I hope everyone has enjoyed their holiday and I'll talk to you next week.